2020 was a tumultuous year. The question we must all ask going forward is simple. What values, ethics, and behaviors from the old world are we going to preserve? And what new perspectives are we going to embrace as we build our future civilizations? This is the New World Podcast with Ariz Kaki and Akio Samji. Ready? Already, yeah. Three, two, one. Welcome back to the New World Podcast. I'm your host, Aris Kaki. And I'm your host, Akil Samji. And today we have a special episode. We're going to be talking about, as you might have probably in the title of this podcast episode, Central Banks, Wall Street, and Stonks. <laughs> and uh, before we begin, we want to sort of uh, start off in a more grateful tone. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our supporters and all of the subscribers and especially all the personal support, DM messages, everything that we've received as feedback, as constructive criticism, since we asked in the first episode that we've been on just us yeah. this. So thank all of you guys for your feedback. And we've really uh, sort of had really personal feedback in terms of some of our viewers complimenting us, even sharing some of our videos and some of our podcast episodes. So we'd like to thank all of you for doing stuff like that. It really helps us in terms of a small podcast grow much mm-hmm. more quicker than we anticipated. It's definitely been uh, pretty fun to interview guests, grow in our own sense of abilities to be able to interview, mm-hmm. listen better to conversations, and essentially ask better questions and more precise questions. And so, like we said, over time, we're going to be growing. We're going to be doing a bit better. But we just like to thank you and basically just tell you, yeah, we have like 78 subscribers on YouTube and about 150 followers on Instagram. So uh, the journey is not over yet. We're planning to keep on going and keep on providing you with better conversations and better guests. And we're just going to be hunkering down from here on out. And we're going to be doubling down. It's an exciting time. Uh, it's a new year. The last video that we recorded actually was at the beginning of 2021. Sure. But now we've sort of settled into the new year. There's a bit more energy now associated with the, a new time. And so we're going to keep on going with this and we're hopefully you're going to be able to join us on the journey. Yeah. You know, I uh, thank you guys so much for watching on YouTube, Spotify, listening on Spotify and Apple podcasts. I can't tell you how much I've learned through doing this podcast, through research and everything. And I really hope you guys have learned as much as we have um honestly just hope you guys are enjoying watching and stay tuned for more episodes perfect and with that we're going to get on to today's topic and as many of you guys know today's topic as we mentioned as i mentioned in the (laughs) beginning right now uh was inspired by certain events that happened on wall street and we're sort of going to talk about those today um first of all we're going to sort of analyze this the current modern day story the premise of this story but we're going to juxtapose that with a few other things that happened throughout history and why it's kind of relevant and then we're going to end off talking about and talking about decentralization of our economy and of our lives. And in particular, we're going to relate that back to the ethos of the New World Podcast, which is stressing the importance of the individual and the fact that it's the individuals, not just companies or governments, but it's individuals together at the end of the day that basically build our world, solve our biggest problems, and essentially will basically make peace. <laughs> and so with that, we're going to get right into it in terms of talking about um, the central bank, why that's important in our lives. And we're going to move on to something we're going to end up for decentralization, as I mentioned. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Akil. And Akil, basically, you might be able to help us and me in terms of letting us know why central banks are such a big deal. Um, I think some of us might have heard of the central bank, like the Bank of Canada, the Federal Reserve Mm -hmm. in the United States. Why is understanding this entity so important? Why do I give a shit? Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Yeah. So, you know, throughout the 2008 recession or even during COVID, you guys might have heard headlines like, the Federal Reserve or the Bank of Canada drops interest rates to 0.25%. And what does that even really mean? Well, to understand that, you need to understand how a central bank works. 
So essentially, to put it in simple terms, it's a government-backed monopoly. So essentially, they have most, if not all, banks underneath them, and they have a few sort of responsibilities that they undertake in terms of helping the bank, setting rules, etc. So a couple of things they do is set a minimum reserve requirement. So a reserve is essentially the sort of, I guess, back end of the bank of all the money they have on hold so that you can take it out from ATMs. You can take it out uh, when you withdraw cash from your accounts. And so the central bank essentially sets a minimum requirement by law that you need to have this much amount of money in the reserve at all times. As, as well, they also have a requirement on how much, how much on hand cash you have. So at each branch, it's the same sort of rules. And essentially, they also have deposit guarantees. It's like in Canada, we have the CDIC, which guarantees you up to, I believe, $50,000. So if the bank were to somehow fail, you would get your money, uh, money up to $50,000 worth back, depending on how much you had in your account. And finally, they bail out banks. As I said, if a bank fails, just like uh, similar to like a recession, they would be able to provide money. The other reason why they might bail out a bank is if uh, banks have money that's below the reserve requirement or how much on-hand cash they have, they give it to them so that they can meet that requirement. And so the responsibilities they take can be breaking down into five different things. So it, that includes transferring funds between commercial banks. So for example, if you get an e-transfer, if you get a check from someone who has an RBC account, which is the Royal Bank of Canada, and you want to deposit it in another bank, say, you know, like TD, American Express, or wherever you are, essentially the, the central bank takes cash from their reserve and gives it to the other bank. And it takes it from RBC, which is the initial bank, and gives it to the bank you're depositing that check to. The second thing is issuing paper currency. So the, Fed, the central bank can essentially print out cash. And the way they do this is by uh, buying bonds and securities from the government in exchange for cash. And if they need more cash back, they do the opposite. The third would be regulating commercial banks, as I explained before with the rules. The fourth would be functioning as a lender of last resort, which is the bailout bank feature. And finally, conducting monetary policy, which is everything I just said uh, put together. And so um, you might have also heard about quantitative easing and other terms. And uh, essentially, quantitative easing is where the, the central bank prints out more money to help the economy. But in doing so, they also might spur more inflation. And because of that, um, they need more money back. And that leads to the whole term of supply and demand. So essentially, because there is uh, less money, sorry, there's more money out and the demand is higher, the price goes up. And essentially, uh, that's pretty much it of what you need to know about central banks so far. So Aris, do you want to talk to us more about the history of the central bank and how it really started? Sure. I think um, before I do, I kind of want to touch base on the supply and demand curve in terms of its importance. So you okay. just mentioned the fact that printing more money, uh, printing more money inadvertently could lead to inflation. inflation. Yeah. In the worst case, um, uh, could lead to even hyperinflation. Mm -hmm. So could you maybe relate that to 2020 now in terms of what we've seen so far from our banks in terms of our in terms of how everyone else's economies are struggling around the world today in terms of 2020? Could you relate that, juxtapose what you just said to today in terms of how the state of the economy looks in terms of how the policies of our governments have been? For sure, yeah. So for example, in the US, you know, there's stimulus checks going out or here in Canada, you can apply to get money. And so because there's more money going out, the value of it decreases because there's more of it. And so the demand increases and so inflation inflation occurs, which essentially rises the price of products that you buy at like a grocery store, for example, because the value of the currency is decreased. So now your dollar has less pow buying power than it did before, which is why when there, when items are being sold in the grocery store, for example, you see the price raised from a dollar to two dollars because now it might take two dollars to make that product instead of a dollar like it used to before. 
And so essentially, yeah, that just relates back to like supply mm. and demand. And it trickles down essentially. Every government mm-hmm. policy, every quantitative easing policy trickles down back to the manufacturer of a particular product. Maybe some a cost of a good went up because there's more money in the economy. And so generally people just assume everything just goes up oh, naturally yeah. because the cost of living goes up, right? Mm-hmm. If there's more of a particular thing, if one the value of one bill produced a product now all of a sudden there's two extra bills and that might only be able to produce a product and it goes up the entire chain from the raw materials to the secondary industries to your manufacturing goods to your tech goods Mm -hmm. um import exports and essentially lands back at you the consumer and you at the end of the day bear the brunt of either inflation deflation can happen as well and so basically at the end of the day all goes down to you in terms of the effect of inflation Mm -hmm. yeah and with that i'll kind of go into sort of the history of the central banking system um obviously as we speak about uh the fed and the Bank of Canada, we sort of juxtapose that always with the United States. And you might mm-hmm. be asking, well, why are majority of our conversations, not just ours, but in general, why does the world often care about the United States? Mm-hmm. Apart from being the global superpower, why does its geopolitical role matter? Well, it essentially has to do also with the central banking system. The idea that, as you mentioned, the centralized authority within, a, within the federal government that is able to regulate monetary policy of the rest of all of our citizens. And so if we go into the history of the central bank, let's just analyze quickly in terms of our historical um, phenomenon. So central bank in particular um, was never really a phenomenon up until the part of the 20th century. So actually, I have written down over here by 1913, the Federal Reserve, which is the head Fed bank, the federal, the head federal bank mm-hmm. in America that dictates monetary policy, wasn't established until 1913. Yeah. And the legislation around that was the Federal Reserve Nationalization Act, which is the idea that this president named Woodrow Wilson signed into law in 1913 basically building a central bank within Washington, D.C. that regulated all other banks in America. And the motivation behind that was prior to 1913, there were a lot of bank failures, particularly as Akia mentioned. The the centralized bank allows other banks to be propped up. And if there's any failure, however, the idea of centralization in America wasn't a sort of a talking point prior to 1913. Instead, if a bank failed, it sort of screwed around with its customers, it caused more inconvenience and stuff like that. So the the goal of the bank essentially was to prevent these failures. There's also a a lot of panics in particular. Mm -hmm. There's this famous case in 1907 where there was a big panic on Wall Street and how there was basically lack of capital everywhere and people were kind of uh, crashing all around them and big hedge fund billionaires at the time like your jp morgans who were real people got together and basically decided to inject more money to the economy now remember these are private individuals this was before any central bank it was sort of these big wealthy people essentially having to prop up the entire system mm-hmm. as of 1913 that sort of changed because what happened is the government stepped in and said we're going to nationalize this idea of a banking system and monetary system became a government-induced system. It was never a government-induced system to begin with anyway. And over time, happened, same thing happened in Canada and in the Bank of England at the time. So the Bank of England, like I said, because it had a British Commonwealth, you can assume that the majority of the countries on the earth also had the exact same monetary policy. Canada, up until 1934, didn't also have a central bank or an income tax. And as a result, over time, taxes were also introduced. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to go over in terms of other uh, so a few other details. So in terms of 1913, the idea was that we wanted to centralize these banks and that people should be protected. And the average American citizen or Canadian citizen should be protected from all type of bank failures. And what did they base this on? Well, the idea was in 1913 that you had to base your currency off of something, right? But still from 1913 up until the 1930s, everyday people were allowed to have a federal bank reserve note. So like I said, these bank notes were printed from, as Akil mentioned, quantitative easing or printed and issued by these central banks. That's why if you look at a $20 bill, you will see the governor of the Bank of Canada signature, or you'll see, like I said, the US dollar, you're going to see the chairman of the Federal Reserve signature. That's basically the people who issue the bill. Mm-hmm. And people were so allowed to trade in gold and silver. Remember, from all of history, societies have traded with gold and silver. Why gold and silver or precious metals per se? 
Well, there's a finite amount. Remember, the idea is of a supply and demand. Mm -hmm. If there is less supply, the demand is more. If the demand is the supply is less and the demand is more, that makes that valuable, that resource scarce. Mm -hmm. And if it's scarce, you are able to use that as buying power for other resources to survive. So throughout all of history, you know, you traded cattle, you traded horses, you treated everything else. And gold came along as a viable option to bet everything based off the value of gold because societies around the world valued gold. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't know the exact historical significance of gold, but the <laughs> idea is that these societies valued gold and silver, possibly because of the fact that they were precious metals and they were hard to get. Mm -hmm. Similarly, the thing that's hard to get or hard to make more of is scarce, right? Which is why we're going to relate Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies later on in this uh, episode in terms of a decentralized option for our future, as you've been hearing in the news. And so the most recent system as to how these bills have been introduced was something called the Bretton Woods Agreement. So I'm going to go into a bit of a historical lesson here. The Bretton Woods Agreement, essentially Bretton Woods is a location in New Hampshire in the United States. And Bretton Woods was a system designated by the major powers of the world at the time. So this was signed in 1944. And you can probably guess 1944 during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. All the major powers on Earth at the time gathered together at this New Hampshire area and decided to build an entire system called the gold standard, or the Bretton Woods Agreement. The agreement was that the, the gold standard, so you've probably heard the saying happen, right? Oh, this company is the gold standard, or this person is the gold standard. Mm -hmm. the, the idea of the gold standard is ex that's exactly what it is. It's a standard. It's the highest standard. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to build something off of gold because, like we said, all collectively, all the nations around the world, and people, all people of all nations knew that gold was a resource. It was a very viable resource. And so we all agreed that gold was something valuable. And so the idea was to base each and every one of our currencies at the price of gold. Mm -hmm. And so that, A, it cannot be manipulated. B, it would prevent global failures. Something like the Great Depression wouldn't happen again. That would lead to World War II. So sort of these were the ideas kind of being spotted around. And maybe if we all collectively agreed that we place our bets on gold, we wouldn't have massive sort of currency differences and hyperinflation that led to these conflicts in the first place. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it would basically streamline everything that no one really could mess, it, mess around with it. That changed in 1971. So in 1971, United States President Richard Nixon removes the U.S. dollar off of the gold standard. Now, you have to remember, all currencies are pinned on the gold standard, and the U.S. dollar was the biggest currency built on that gold standard. However, that means the U.S. dollar was indeed linked to the price of gold. For the first time in history, Richard Nixon, the president at that time, removes the U.S. dollar off the gold standard and allows the U.S. dollar to become something that's called fiat currency. So fiat currency is essentially a worthless currency. If you think about it, we said that the U.S. dollar is built off gold, and gold has a meaningful value. Mm -hmm. Now, the U.S. dollar essentially is just what? Paper. And it doesn't really have any value if you take it off the gold standard. It's like saying if one piece of paper is worth a bar of gold, and all of a sudden I say this paper's value is no longer attached to that bar of gold, well, it doesn't have any value then because there's nothing to relate it to. And so this idea is that it's a fiat currency, and that means everyone in the world kind of agreed. We sort of kind of like shrugged and said, okay, I guess we're going to accept the U.S. dollar as, as basically the ruling uh, currency amongst all of us. That's why... Even today, you trade Canada, Canadian dollars. How much is that in U.S. dollars? Oh, Everyone asks that kind of question. No one asks how much is Canadian in like euros. Everyone asks how much is euros in USD or mm -hmm. a Chinese yuan in USD or Canadian dollar in USD. Yeah. United States dollar is indeed the global fiat currency till this very day as well. And so this idea since 1971 allowed the federal government of the United States to print infinite amounts of money. And so what does this do? Again, it goes back to a supply and demand problem. You have basically... Um, a limited amount of supply, potentially an infinite amount of supply of these central banks that devalues the U.S. dollar, but at the same time allows for all these allows for massive quantitative easing. So you, like you said, you probably heard of these concerns. Many people who said we shouldn't be printing more money, we shouldn't be doing this. Well, the current the the the, the concern is real because the idea is that there's gonna it's gonna lead to hyperinflation, inflation, but at the same time a devaluation. If there's a devaluation in the currency, 
you have to leverage other currencies of other countries, or you have to think of new currencies to work with. And in a centralized system that has been centralized for so long, it's hard for an entire centralized system that collapses to convert to something immediately. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of problems here on both sides, as you can see. So before we get into that, we can maybe speak to Akhil about uh, maybe what was the what what are some of the cons of the central banking system and how it's sort of related to Wall Street in particular and how we can relate it and segue back into this segment of Wall Street. So before I talk about sort of the cons of the central bank, uh, I forgot to touch upon one thing in the beginning when I was describing central banks, which are interest rates. So essentially, when the central bank sets an interest rate, they can raise it or lower it, and the interest rate is the uh, amount cal- is a percentage that they use to calculate how much you have to pay back on loans and mortgages on top of what you borrowed. And so when the government, when the central bank raises interest rates, essentially people are more hesitant to take out mortgages, take out loans and, and just essentially borrow money because they know they're going to have to pay more back over time. But when interest rates are lowered, people try to take advantage of it. And so this is what happened essentially during the 2008 Great Recession, and especially in the United States, the interest rate was dropped to a really low amount. And so people started taking out more mortgages, like second, third, fourth. People started taking out more loans and started spending more money because they thought that low interest rate would stay there forever. So that, you know, when they pay back, they don't have to pay that much on top. So instead of waiting to get that money and earn it yourself down the line, they could just get it now and just pay it back later. But then what happened is the interest rate was risen by the central bank or the Federal Reserve in the United States case to try to control this because they realized people are taking out too many mortgages and and they might not be able to pay it back. And that's exactly what happened. Because the interest rate rose, people didn't have enough money anymore to pay it back. And so these banks didn't have enough money in their Federal Reserves or the on-hand cash. And so the Federal Reserve had to bail them out and had to give them more money. And essentially, like I explained before, with more supply of money and more demand of money, inflation occurred. And so the only people that really prospered were the rich because they have enough money to counter inflation. But the rest of the people suffered because now things, the prices of things are rising to extreme levels. And on top of that, there was a company called Lehman Brothers who were giving out a lot of loans. But because they were a private company not under the central bank, they never got bailed out. And so when the interest rates rose, uh, people weren't paying them back. And so they ran out of money and they collapsed. And uh, another thing I wanted to talk about with interest rates is essentially the prime rate and the discount rate. So the prime rate is what applies to the general public like you and me, but there's a discount rate that applies to how much the banks have to pay back the central bank when they borrow money to stock up their Federal Reserve or their on-hand cash. And that's generally a lot lower than the prime rate is. And so essentially that leads to a lot of, you know, like kind of favoritism or cronyism as we call it, uh, because these the central bank is bailing out banks with a cheaper discount rate and then they're charging you a higher prime rate to earn more money back. Mm. And that's not really that fair. And I think Ariz will touch more upon that. Yeah, definitely with, with the cronyism, it's not just limited to banks, but big companies as well. Oh, right? yeah, for the sure. whole argument in 2008 was like, the banks are too big to fail. Like they won't be able to fail because just gigantic, nothing mm-hmm. will happen. Don't worry about it. Like we'll kick the can down the road. That sort of mentality led to the central bank systems and these governments. So at the time you could think of the election of Barack Obama as being sort of the milestone that he was like, we're going to bring it all in together. But the idea was that he built more banks on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. He brought many other companies that were on the brink of bankruptcy back. Like GM was bailed out, for example, sure, General yeah. Motors. And this is sort of the argument that we've kind of posed. As you probably, some of you might have watched our episode with Yaron Brook. Mm-hmm. We spoke about true capitalism and true free market economics. Often some of the critics of capitalism will say, oh, look at this. This is inside favors. The government's bailing out the rich because the rich get it always it's like this shouldn't be the reality because the idea is that 
free market capitalism doesn't allow for cronyism to exist. Cronyism can only exist when big business and big government work together, i.e., for example, fascism mm -hmm. serves in the same way. The idea of this huge government that uses the private sector and the government work together, this elite and a lower class. And so this is basically exactly what you saw in 2008. More companies were getting bailed out and everyday people like you and I weren't able to sort of get the luxury. Yeah, mm -hmm. we were getting the, the stimulus, the personal paycheck program was introduced in 2008. And so all these government programs are coming along, but there was a sort of unfair, I guess, um, attention being given to Wall Street in particular, and some of these billionaires, some of these companies who in a free market, the idea is, look, if I take a risk or if I put a loan up hmm. to pursue an entrepreneurial adventure, you know, we always talk about taking risk and how so, beautiful yeah. it is to take risk. And if you benefit, the beauty of the free market is if you take out a loan and take out risk and you build an amazing product or you're an entrepreneur and you pave the path and you trailblaze, you get rewarded essentially with monetary value. Hmm. But for some reason, it's like when these companies, these big companies, because they're big companies and because they're well-known and have insider people in governments or in media somehow they got the bill out it's like mm -hmm. i failed but you have to learn and get up instead yeah. what these guys do is they feel they got a trampoline they basically <laughs> bounce right back yeah. and so that's the idea of how unfair stuff is right mm -hmm. and so this was exactly what led to some of these revolutions and so we're going to juxtapose exactly what happened in 2008 on wall street with what's happening right now and then we're going to move on to what we think is going to happen in the near future and over time a decentralized future sure, sure. so i essentially want to go back to the 2008 financial crisis and kind of do uh work from there so after this whole crisis came about, mm -hmm. many of us were probably young in terms of Gen Z. We we're probably just, I guess, seven or eight years old. We were in the primary schools. And many of our parents kind of bear the brunt of it. There was mass unemployment, mass, a bit of inflation. People lost their jobs. People lost their homes. A lot of foreclosures in the United States and in Canada in particular. And basically, the world economy kind of grinded to a slow kind of growth. And the idea was from these central banks, as we mentioned, is, oh, we'll just lower interest rates and pump more money to mm -hmm. artificially increase the programs. That's essentially what the Obama administration and most of our governments here in Canada did, was they sort of lowered interest rates and they began to pump more economy, uh, pump more money into the economy. So it kind of creates a bubble. You've heard of this idea of a bubble. It's an artificial bubble that kind of shows that there's some kind of growth happening. Mm -hmm. Oh, like the stock price is going up, but the stock market's amazing, but for some reason, people are still unemployed. Like that's kind of the idea is that more money is being printed and it benefits investors on Wall Street, not the little guy who's stuck at home in unemployment because of, again, actions taken by some of these bankers and by some perverse, by some of these perverse lending policies of these banks that were allowed by at the end of the day by the Federal Reserve, this idea of a centralized banking system, which many have argued is not capitalistic or free market at all, because these banks at any time, these central banks can manipulate interest rates and bail out banks and bail out companies at the orders and the behest of the government. And so this is kind of like the whole hosh posh of the mess that was happening in 2008 and so it began to let people ask fundamental questions again which was how, what is our economic system going to be is this capitalism is it the one percent versus the 99 percent mm -hmm. and this basically led to a movement known as occupy wall street occupy wall street was this idea of the one percent versus the 99 percent the idea that the elite somehow controlled all of our lives and that we weren't going to take it anymore and that regular people weren't going to take it and so they were going to all of them unemployed all them young students mm -hmm. possibly with student loan had nothing else to do and they descended on to new york city from all across the country and then in toronto we simply had a similar one occupy city hall i think we yeah. had we had plenty of ones around the world essentially mm -hmm. and the idea was that we're gonna they're gonna stick it to the elite particularly at wall street who were bailed out with insider government things and it was actually these guys these perverse loan uh, these perverted companies and these big firms on Wall Street and these big venture capital firms and sort of these big hedge funds that essentially let all of us down this path. And so we're going to protest, we're going to occupy Wall Street, essentially, literally mm -hmm. setting up tents and disrupting the entire thing to kind of show a sign of protest. And the intentions essentially were good of Occupy Wall Street, which is the idea that we were going to give it to the central bank. And the idea was some of these 
more new phenomenons were happening, these ideas of uh, libertarianism, these ideas that maybe we should, it's time to get rid of the central bank, right? Remember, the idea for most capitalists and for most people is you want to empower the individual. And the idea was the central bank stood in the way. In reality, the central bank isn't really free market because it's a centralized authority that tells every other bank what to do, controls money supply. And a government official at any point in time, depending on who you elect, can easily print out money for their own selfish purposes. Mm -hmm. You saw this in, in the 2000s when Bush went to Iraq and Afghanistan, and you saw how much money was spent to the war machine. And it's politicians like these who are unchecked who can simply just ask the central bank and it will just print more money, mm -hmm. trillions and trillions of dollars, while there's a war going on overseas, but at the end of the day, the quality of life and everything else around us is increasing. And everyday Canadians or Americans here on their own land are sort of suffering while they're kind of freeing other countries. And that was sort of the idea. Like, this is pretty weird. This doesn't make any sense. And so there's these calls to end the Federal Reserve. And the Fed became a hashtag, mm -hmm. became a movement, Occupy Wall Street, this idea that the elite have to play by the same rules. And so this has been brewing for a while now, <clears throat> particularly in 2008, 2009, when the Occupy Wall Street movement was taking up. And then a political movement followed suit. Remember, Occupy Wall Street was a socio-cultural movement. As you mentioned in my first article that I wrote for New World Podcast, the idea was that it's culture and society on a societal level that leads at the end of the day then to a political change or then to a societal change. Remember, the civil rights movement started out as something that local people, a pastor from Alabama, started in his own church and moved on to the rest of the United States from a social, like a group of small people. And that eventually became legislation, the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And so at the same time, the goal was to make it an eventual political party, which was a Tea Party movement. The Tea Party movement essentially wanted to get rid of the Fed, was sort of hawkish on government spending. Because remember, here's here's one thing that people should care about. If you're asking why Gen Z should care about this, it's like, well, most of us now are working and we're seeing the, the repercussions of unchecked government spending now, right? We have government spending here or there, Every single day you see a new program being introduced, despite not questioning how effective that program is, most of your tax dollars are going there. So at the end of the day, it does matter because you're spending and you're paying the taxes at the end of the day. And the debt is accounting on you. Remember, a citizen owes its con uh, the, the debt that a national debt, that a country that the national debt that a country has has to be paid at the end of the day by someone, and that someone is you, mm -hmm. citizens, right? And so you can actually search up on Google how much each Canadian or US citizen actually owes at the moment based off the debt ticker as it mounts and mounts and mounts. So, anyways. These ideas were brought out to sort of hone in the elites of the time on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And so, Ariz, I wanted to ask, what's one viable solution uh, that you think would, would work if the central bank was abolished? Sure. So as of right now, I have some notes here with regards to some of the movements of the Libertarian, the Tea Party uh, movement, and mm -hmm. essentially what used to happen prior to the establishment of these banks. The idea at the end of the day, as we mentioned with Yaron and some of the themes with regarding to maybe blockchain technology today is simple, decentralization. Mm -hmm. The idea is everything. It's the opposite of what we have. Central bank. We need a decentral bank, which is no central bank. <laughs> okay. The idea is that you want to empower individuals. Like I said, the ethos of this podcast is always empower individuals. And our leanings in terms of our political and economic leanings always reflect the way of what we say. We always reiterate mm -hmm. that ethos of the individual and why it matters. Generally speaking, you know how to lead your life better than some one else does and the mm -hmm. idea is you know how to make your economic transactions every day right you get up in the morning and you always take a risk with your dollar and you're voting with your dollar every day and the idea is to permit people with more power over their lives so that they have more purchasing power in the currency that they use and at the end of the day there's upward social mobility you mm -hmm. want to get people from 
I guess, lower quality of life to higher standards of living. And you do that based off empowering them with the tools to benefit in a free market. And the the free market allows you to take risk, right? Mm -hmm. Allows you to take risk, allows you to accumulate wealth and to work hard. And there are some responsibilities on the individual that is to work hard, to get educated or to embrace risk and to be an entrepreneur and to sort of trailblaze in your industry. And so the ideas essentially of the solutions would be instead of a central bank, have some of these commercial banks who act as private companies exist. However, form associations, mutual Mm -hmm. associations, so that you'll have sort of certain groups of banks that work together, that verify each other, that keep each other in check in terms of a a separate private company that is sort of like a clubhouse for all these sort of central banks, and they have to meet a particular standard of requirements. And these requirements include the capital requirements, the asset requirements, and the ability for these banks to be able to be self-sufficient in case Mm -hmm. of a crisis. And at the same time, many people have also argued, well, who issues the paper currency? It's quite simple. Each bank issues its own paper currency, right? The idea is that we have we should have a free market of currencies. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get to that in terms of the argument that many people today are making, particularly us, about cryptocurrency mm-hmm. and how that's probably the futuristic of, future of currency. Or going back to the gold standard, using gold, yes. using silver, using the US dollar, using the Canadian dollar, Chinese yuan, whatever. The idea is a free market. There shouldn't be a monopoly on currency. Uh, that's sort of like the uh, the irony of the oxymoron with the currency, yeah. the free market that you need the dollar. That's the supreme kind of mm-hmm. currency. And the idea is, well, you need to regulate commercial banks. There's there's those associations which are called clearinghouse associations. These existed prior to the central bank, and they could exist as a viable solution post if we're ever going to get rid of these central banks. These are called clearinghouse associations. You can search them up. These are basically just sort of mutual cooperation between several series of banks that have to meet a particular amount of guidelines. And these clearinghouses also function as a functions of a lender of last resort. But instead of it being a central bank, that at any point in time has unanimous power that can at any time print any money that it mm-hmm. wants, it is limited because there's an insurance policy. A bank, like I said, it's about transactions and business. And so if a client bank is working with this clearinghouse association, there has to be a sort of insurance policy set that that is sort of like it guarantees you that in your customers and your clients, that in case of failure, I'm paying to my own uh I'm paying to my own policy versus a Fed is government run. Government is not accountable to no one. They say that they're accountable to the taxpayers or to the regular people. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we know that's not true because otherwise many of us would have other problems with the government. <laughs> and so there's this idea that government is immutable. And it's true. Anytime something is backed by government, you can be guaranteed that it's protected because government is government. It's something that it really has unchecked power because it has people like us, taxpayers, who have to foot the bill generations from now. And at the end of the day, the idea is who connects monetary policy? Well, a decentralized model would favor the ability for banks to go back to the gold standard to make sure that the manipulation of these currencies doesn't happen because various decentralized banks, if all go on the gold standard and are able to work together and have market forces predict whether or not the US dollar does better or the Chinese yuan does better or the Canadian dollar does better instead of having crony kind of manipulative policies being introduced. And so with that, we wanted to relate that back to the central bank and why that matters. It's because a lot of people believe that these elites, especially with the next story that we're going to cover, are favored by the ultra rich and the government insiders. And it's true because the central bank essentially enables them to do that. And many people on the right, when you call the libertarians and on the left kind of agree on this in the sense that we have to kind of keep these these elites in control. There's just different ways of doing it. And so we're going to analyze that in a real life case scenario not involving the central bank necessarily, but knowing that the central bank is responsible oh, because these are the these the central banks have been bailing out these corrupt people mm-hmm. on Wall Street forever. And so that we're gonna go back to the Wall Street bet story and how what an interesting story it indeed <laughs> yes. was. So before we go to the main story that I know all you want to hear about, you know, Wall Street bets and hedge fund and GameStop, I first wanted to talk a little bit about the stock market so you can get a little bit of understanding of what really went to happen. So essentially 
when companies are on the stock market, they have shares that they're selling to people. And then when they become public, they go through a process called underwriting, which essentially labels what price the, the shares are going to be sold at when they first go public and how many shares they have. And then so once they go public, they go through something called the IPO or initial public offering where people can immediately start buying the stock off like any app or anything like that. And so the price is essentially calculated through supply and demand. There is a formula to it, but I won't go into specifics. And so that's how people, you know, like buy stocks, it goes up and they sell it. That's like the general principle. So aside from that general principle, there's also other ways to make money off of stocks. But relating back to the story, I'm just going to talk about puts or shorts, which essentially was what the hedge funds were doing to GameStop stock. So the general principle, like I mentioned before, is essentially you buy a share, let's say, at uh, $10 and you sell it at $20. And so you make $10 off the share. What puts are is making money when the value of a share goes down. So what they do is they borrow shares from a broker. So let's say they borrow a share at $100 and then they wait for the price to drop. So let's say it drops to $70 and they buy it back and return it to the broker. So they made $30 off of that share, even though the price went down. And so with GameStop stock, essentially hedge funds were saying that they were going to short it because GameStop shouldn't be valued at the price it was and that it should be actually undervalued at a lower price. Yeah. And you got to remember, sorry, Tindu, yeah. you got to remember the fact that during the whole COVID ep- a pandemic, essentially these new stories pop up because there's another thing happening. Yeah, for sure, yeah. The stock market resembles what's happening in the real world. And the argument was prior to COVID, remember I, uh, the data shows like a year prior to COVID, even in 2019, GameStop stock has been at $2 for about a year before mm-hmm. this all happened. Yeah. And the reason is, is simple because more and more people are now buying on Amazon, right? Amazon's yeah. kind of sucking up retail out of these companies and so no one's really going to a brick and mortar company to buy this exactly. like with covid it was even exacerbated and essentially yeah, so yeah, the, yeah that's what yeah. the analysts on the news were saying so, yeah and especially with gamestop if you especially if you play video games you know a lot of people buy digitally now like through playstation store like the microsoft store no one really goes to brick and mortar stores like you were saying and so that's why these hedge funds were believing that gamestop should be undervalued and so they began putting puts or shorts and essentially the price started going down. And so Wall Street Bets, which is a group on Reddit, essentially saw what was going on and got mad at the fact that these powerful corporations and hedge funds on Wall Street can say that of uh, uh, the value of a stock should be less, put shorts on it and it immediately starts going down. That means they have that much power to manipulate the stock market. And so they realized if we all band together, we could have enough power to instead raise the price of the short market and cause those losses to be infinite for those hedge funds, which is exactly what they did. Because when you put in a put, the most amount of money you can gain is if it goes all the way down to zero from the price you borrowed the share at. But remember, the losses can be infinite because that stock value can go up as high as it wants. Mm -hmm. And so what these Wall Street bet people did is essentially started pouring money into the GameStop stock. Mm -hmm. And like with supply and demand, essentially the supply of shares was going down, but the demand was going higher because these Wall Street people, Wall Street bets people wanted to buy more shares. And so the price started flying up. And so these hedge funds who had put puts or shorts are now starting to lose money. And I believe I was reading one article that said uh, hedge funds lost to around $40 billion, which is a lot of money. No, I think it was for Tesla shorts last year. So a similar, similar example, example yeah. last year, Tesla was shorted and some of these hedge funds lost $40 billion. billion. Dollars. Mm-hmm. I think at this time it was like around $4 billion, but still in the billions. Yeah. yeah. And so essentially these people needed to get bailed out and they were bailed out by other hedge funds and I believe by the central bank itself. Yeah, and some of these policies essentially allow for these central bankers to kind of bail out. And the, the quick thing to relate here in terms of the central bank is... Uh, and a full example of cronyism at its finest, which is the idea that, remember, these were everyday people. These were middle class, 
millennials, Gen Z, probably mm-hmm. who are out of work, who are like, hey, you know what? I'm going to use the last of my stimulus check, or I work at a grocery store. I'm just going to invest for the sake of investing. investing. I've yeah. heard investing is good now. So I'm going to invest in the stock market. Remember, we're having these huge bubbles right now during COVID, how mm-hmm. the stock market is reaching unlimited amounts of numbers, but somehow the economy is suffering. Again, going back to the idea of quantitative easing and how that's manipulating stock markets and building up bubbles. And so this idea that the cronyism doesn't exist on Wall Street, well, this is a prime example. That's why the outrage happened. The idea was that these everyday people put their life savings, some of them, mm-hmm. or the last amount of stimulus paycheck or whatever, into the stock market hoping for a return. They got the return. The Wall Street people were bleeding money. Mm-hmm. And like, like Akil said, the other option is unlimited. And the yeah. unlimited number, that X value, is how much that stock price was bet on the other way around. Uh, yeah. If the Wall Street bets people kept on pushing the price up and up and up, the more and more that stock price was going to mm-hmm. go, the more and more these hedge funds were going to bleed money. Uh, yeah. And because their shorts are unlimited now, because they have to owe all that money back now. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that trading was suspended on some of these platforms. And the biggest platform in question was indeed Robinhood. Robin Hood, yeah. And the idea is why Robinhood got into this because majority of these people were using Robinhood as the e-trader or as mm-hmm. the broker, the, broker, the online yeah. broker. Mm-hmm. Many include Simple, e-trader, what are the other examples of Weeble? Yeah, even use Interactive Broker too. Yeah, there's like plenty of examples, but Robinhood mm-hmm. was the one in this case. And Robinhood is a billion dollar company valuation as well. And the idea was that Robinhood shut down trading because somehow this was bad. Mm-hmm. And this became outrage because it was on all the major news channels, breaking news, a group of, and it sounds funny because it's a good news story, a group of Redditors, probably teenagers, yeah. don't, <laughs> literally were just bored out of their minds. were like, yo, let's just give mm-hmm. it to these Wall Street hedge funds after all these years of corruption. Did it, and now they're a news story. Mm-hmm. Where the real cronyism comes in is the fact that the trading was stopped on all mm-hmm. these platforms. These shares were told that they cannot be they can they can sell their shares. They can they sell the amount that they have, but they can't buy any more of it. Yeah, and so as more and more people got involved mm-hmm. and more people wanted to buy, all of a sudden, like, wait a second, we can't buy anymore. Yeah, and essentially that goes back exactly to supply and demand because uh, Robin Hood was saying you could only sell stocks, and as you start selling stocks, there's more supply. And even though the and as such the demand goes down because you can't buy anymore, and so the price starts falling. And that's exactly what they were trying to do to essentially help Wall Street. We don't really know, but you know the CEO is going to testify soon. Yeah. But uh, we'll see what happens with yeah, that. The yeah, testifying in Congress is happening mm-hmm. sometime this week, so we'll see what happens. I don't think anything will happen, but yeah. <laughs> the, ju- judging by the uh, idea of cronyism, and so Akil mentioned how central bank is related. Yeah, uh, there was a recent news story about the idea that the former he- Fed chair during the Obama administration, Janet Yellen who right now is a treasury secretary or the equivalent of the minister of finance for mm-hmm. Joe Biden was actually paid by some of these hedge fund managers as some of these same hedge funds that are losing billions paid her around 800 K I believe for a speech. Yeah. Now I don't know about you, but I'd like, like, I'd like that job. I would like to do a speech <laughs> for $800,000 because she used to be the fed chair. Now she's a treasury secretary. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden the cronyism is showing up because a, she was paid by these hedge fund managers. And now there are, calls in Congress and these governments by these Wall Street firms to start to regulate the economy. And this is where the cronyism sinks in. Because look, you have an insider in government who has a conflict of interest with someone on Wall Street, and all of a sudden, the government's here to jump regulation. Now, we're libertarian, we're free markets, free marketers, a lot of free marketers and libertarians are against any regulation of any sort. Mm -hmm. But the idea is, is that the regulation was called upon at a time when it was unfavorable to the giants. That's you have to understand that Wall Street doesn't want any regulation. Now why they're calling for regulation. Even I, I personally believe that the less regulation, the more powerful power mm. people have with their lives. But the call for regulation was uncalled for in the first place. But it was called for because something happened to them. Their rules didn't matter. When all these years people have been calling for regulations mm. on trading, nothing made sense. But now all of a sudden it makes sense That's because it. these hedge fund managers have insiders in government, whether they be senators, members of parliament, politicians. This is where the cronyism steps in. And I want to sort of transition, as Akil mentioned, 
as to how these hedge fund managers have that much power. I mean, many of us don't know their names. I don't yeah. know the CEO of Robinhood's name. He doesn't have Twitter. I mean, he probably has Twitter, but he's not that many followers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know like Jay-Z, I know Beyonce because they have followers on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I have Twitter, but I don't follow these guys. And so the idea comes from their cronies, which is the media. And mm-hmm. I know we've spoken about in the first episode in particular, our feelings towards the mainstream media. And we made that very clear in terms of the fact that we believe mainstream media is dying in terms of mm-hmm. an industry. However, they still have the, have the ability to pull strings and they're using social media. These same anchors, these same personalities are now using their assets in social media because they know our generation uses social media mm-hmm. as much. And so as these people were investing in the stock market, remember the analysts all said that this was going to go down yeah, yeah. and the, and the idea of that that came to them from the hedge funds. The hedge yeah. funds, uh, an, an expert in the hedge fund bets something, gives it to a particular publication or a newspaper article. So MSNBC was one of the biggest analysts, these economic analysts that you see on TV. Mm-hmm. Oh, the stock market is doing this because of X. All these analysts, they were single-handedly responsible for this short. They yeah. were supposed to be in charge of selling to you, the rest of the world, mm-hmm. the rest of us, that, hey, the stock is going to go down because of X, Y, and Z. See, the yeah. case is pretty good. Why uh, GameStop should go down. Mm-hmm. But the idea was that it was being shorted. And so people, if there was natural market forces at play, the idea was that, okay, it's going to go down naturally. Maybe GameStop would have been bankrupt in about two years because, hey, be honest, no one goes to brick and mortar stores anymore. Yeah. But the idea was that this was a short. Mm-hmm. And so these analysts were complicit as much so as the hedge fund managers. And you have to notice that some of these news articles that are being written, which is why we wanted to do this episode to kind of clear the misinformation and to give you the objective facts and an analysis that I think will be beneficial to all of us is that many of these news publications are calling for the arrest of some of these Reddit users, yeah. <laughs> the, the head of the subreddit to arrest him, to fine him and to get rid of and to regulate so that young people who are not experts at mm-hmm. shorting should not be able to short. And this is funny because Either are you going to allow shorting for everyone mm-hmm. or are you not going to allow shorting? In that case, if you're not going to allow shorting, then tell the hedge fund people themselves that they can't yeah, short as well. Exactly. And this is where the debate is coming. So people are so furious. This is why people are pissed. And so this whole question about like the elites uh, rules for thee, but not for me mm-hmm. is coming out. Like why all of a sudden the rules are changing and why all of a sudden uh, Congress is having hearings and uh, earth and heaven are being moved <laughs> to help some of these Wall Street firms. Yeah. When in fact, in 2008, the exact same thing happened, mm-hmm. but really nothing ended up happening. Or this whole pandemic that we've had shut down, there hasn't been investigations or calls for us to who's benefited from during this pandemic in mm-hmm. terms of from a coronavirus perspective. And there's been plenty of people who became much more wealthier, yeah. particularly on Wall Street for just moving and shorting stocks. Mm-hmm. That's what you see in the stock market reach all-time highs but people today are still unemployed and yeah. businesses are struggling but somehow the stock market's doing high and mm-hmm. you have to remember that the stock market is not an actual measure of the economy's yeah, health yeah, right so we have to understand that there's some manipulation going on yeah uh yeah so i think that brings an end to this segment but do you want to move on to the three takeaways sure i think before we move on to the three takeaways i'm kind of talk talk about uh, our decentralized future essentially maybe talk about from a bit more positive tone uh the idea is that well what's the solution right i mentioned previously that the uh, Occupy Wall Street people are essentially saying, look, get rid of the central bank, let our banking institutions take care of themselves. Decentralization. I would say that'd be my first takeaway, decentralization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the biggest takeaway that I can think of on this story is simple. What happened on Reddit was something extraordinary that I think people should take note of. Um, this was not normal. The internet allowed the democratization of information of people to meet one another and people to learn from each other. And many guests that we've had on this show and we're going to have in the future always talk about the same thing, that you can learn anything that you want yeah. at any point in time in history, more so that now, now than ever, you have information at your disposal that people before never had. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ideas I want to hammer home is decentralization and why I believe decentralization is indeed our future. We're seeing more and more people, open source, people, every, every day people band together to give it to the big guy. And the idea is that 
these central planners, these central committees are not working anymore. They're not feasible. And people are decentralizing within their lives. People are taking control more of their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think the most recent incarnation was this GameStop story. But in reality, it started way earlier. If you think about some of the reasons as to why Donald Trump was elected in the first place, it was basically that young everyday people were pissed off yeah. at some of these elites and some of these people uh, for controlling uh, some of the resources in the economy. You saw that in the January 6th DC Capitol Hill protest. It was a symbol of people just being angry. Yeah. Apart from the whole election uh, election situation, the idea was that that Capitol building represented the, the state at which these people who are elected to go there to perform and make legislation to allow other people and their constituents to live better lives gathered. And so people were just pissed off. And these are incarnations that we're seeing now. The second one being the GameStop story. And mm-hmm. does it stop there? I don't know. But all I can tell you is decentralization is coming, yeah. whether it be slow or steady. Uh, the second uh, uh, second takeaway that I have from this is the idea that individuals have power, mm-hmm. right? Young people on Reddit had the power to say something and it worked. And so you can bet your odds on this and you can still win. But there's mm-hmm. the same time that, like I said, shorting is risking. You can bet and you can lose. Yeah. But the idea is that these people on a Reddit forum have the ability to like, make <laughs> headlines is very, very funny and shows you how much power people still have if we look at ourselves as individuals. And third, and finally, the most important is be careful and be wary of the media. I mean, you said this plenty of times over, but this is another incarnation. Of, this is another incarnation of, again, be careful yeah. of the media. <laughs> this is an economic situation. Remember, there have been plenty of other times in history where the media has kind of exaggerated certain potential mm-hmm. problems to generate fear in you, to manipulate you emotionally, to drive you into a state of emotion where you don't think logically, you thought emotionally, mm-hmm. and you jump to wrong conclusions. That's the whole idea of a short. The yeah. short is to put emotion in you, to put fear in you, from you to, for you to think in your amygdala and your mammalian brain, fill yourself with adrenaline, a, ru- a, fi- ru- a fight or flight risk, yeah. and this idea that it's about survival. But in reality, this was never a thing in the first place. You're watching the media too much. So keep the media in check. Make sure you filter what you read, and especially on social media where it's even worse, where you listen to one soundbite. Remember, yeah. always listen to context. In fact, let me rephrase that. My third takeaway is listen to context when you're looking at media, simple. Akil, what about your three takeaways? Yeah, so essentially my takeaways are kind of similar. My first one is essentially learn, learn, learn. You know, do the research and take your time to learn. Like I said in our first episode, you don't have to learn everything all at once, but just learn one thing a day. And especially listening to our episode is a great point to, like a great uh, (laughs) thing to listen to and to learn, but essentially keep on learning, Look, look at other things, do a simple Google search, you know? My second thing is you don't have to get involved into all these trending topics. So I know we talked a lot about the stock market and GameStop on this, but that's not to say that, oh, you need to be on the stock market to make money. There's obviously other ways to do so. Mm. But the thing I would say is just learn and understand what's going on. Don't be oblivious to this because it does affect your life in so, uh, in a way or another. Like we said, the central bank, you know, you, you guys are probably working jobs, you're making money, you're spending money. So it does have a little bit of a effect value on your life. The money goes down the moment a politician says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Exactly. Yeah. And you know... Um, also, too, if you're looking to get into the stock market and things like that, please, please, please do more research because it is really risky. A lot of these Reddit people, you know, they got lucky, uh, not lucky, but they poured in their resources and they, they timed it right. They got a lot of money. And essentially, if you go into the stock market oblivious, sure, you might get lucky. You might invest in like Amazon or something and make like a thousand dollars. But the next time, the next investment you make, you might lose like two thousand dollars. You know, so it's really risky. So make sure you learn what you're doing. Uh, my third thing is kind of opposite from everything we've been saying, like talking about financial and stuff. But I would say go out and vote and understand what politicians and uh, their platforms are, especially in regulations to finances and things that matter to you. Like Ariz was saying, you know, one politician can change one thing. So go out there and understand, like, when it's your time to vote, be 
do your civil civil duty, you know, go vote and understand what's going on because that doesn't just determine no simple policies and boring things that you may not understand, but it also affects like, you know, your day-to-day life, your minimum wage and things like that. And essentially that would be my third takeaway. Yeah. And before we end, I'd like to re-mention the fact that the decentralization is the biggest takeaway here, which is mm-hmm. that the future in the new world is definitely going to be decentralized. I can guarantee you and I can declare here on the new world podcast that the future is indeed decentralized. <laughs> we'll see you guys next time. We'll take care. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, comment, and share. Check us out for an audio-only experience on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other outlets. Follow us on all of our social media, and please consider supporting us on Patreon. All of these links will be in the description. That's it for us today. Welcome to the new world.